We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to Perpetual Chess. A quick announcement before I get to this week's guest, and this is an exciting announcement. I'll actually be doing some live podcasts at this year's Elementary Nationals, so I want to thank the USCF for the opportunity. And what's going to happen is on May 11th at the Elementary Nationals in Nashville, Tennessee, I'll be interviewing several high-profile chess people. Uh, we will have uh, Carol Meyer, the new president of the USCF, uh, along with Michael Hoffpower, the president of US Chess. So I'll interview them together. I'll also, Jay Stallings will also be coming back, uh, legendary chess coach, as well as uh, Sunil Waramantri, step, stepfather of Hikaru Nakamura, who's built an amazing program at Hunter and a strong player and chess author in his own right. And last but not least, Irina Crush. Uh, will be a guest. So those are going to be four separate standalone 60-minute interviews all in that day at different times. So if you're at the Nationals, you can come in and out and check them out. If you happen to live nearby, 
you can make the drive and come camp out and see four live interviews, ask questions, stuff like that. So I'll link to this on the website and Twitter and Facebook and all that, and maybe mention it once or twice more, but I just wanted to share that exciting news. Uh, okay, that's out of the way now, so let's get to our esteemed guest who I'm really excited for. Um, Grandmaster and very well-known trainer, steeped in chess history, um, Melikset Kachian. Melikset, thank you for joining us. Sure, thank you, thank you for inviting me for this amazing, you know, interview. All right. Oh, you're you're too kind. So obviously, Melikset, everyone, we're taping this, and first of all, I want to thank you for interrupting the candidates uh, as we record. There's four, there's four rounds left, and the games are ongoing. So I really appreciate that you're willing to, uh, to talk while that's going on. But I feel like we have to start with it. But we also have to have in mind that, first of all, we're recording on Friday, and this will come out on Tuesday. And sure. so that by the time people hear this, they'll know a lot more than we do. So we're not going to sit here and talk about who's going to win and stuff like that. But your relationship with Grandmaster Levon Aronian is well, well documented. There was a great article, great profile on Levon Aronian in The New Yorker, where you were quoted extensively, and we actually had Sean Williams, the author of that profile, on the show. Um, and in it, you talk about your relationship with Levon. So a lot of people have been wondering, and I actually have a question from a listener related sure. to this. So question from uh, Chris Lott. What happened to Aronian in the candidates? Even if he somehow finishes strong, can he come back from this and ever challenge for the world championship title? I mean, I don't know, honestly. Uh, yesterday I texted, um, I, I, I didn't want to bother him. I texted his uh, his mom and uh, his sister, what's going on. I was uh, providing my own support. Um, what my understanding is, um, Leona Ronian is an amazing chess player, obviously. One of the best chess players in, in nowadays, like chess history. But unfortunately, whenever we um, deal with, uh, let's say, uh, humongous pressure on his shoulders, such as like a playing candidate, um, looks like his strength is dropping down. I mean, maybe he's putting too much, uh, too much of thinking about it. Maybe he should be going a little bit easier. I mean, we can see like a uh, transition, like a, from Caruana, because last time when Caruana played uh, in Moscow tournament, he was clearly feel like so much pressure on his shoulders as well. But this time he's actually playing much more relaxed. I mean. This is my, my understanding. I think um, something went wrong from the very beginning for Levan Aronian when he uh, couldn't convert a very good position at the very first round against Ding Loren. And from there, something went wrong. This is, this is like a, my, my version. Okay. And since you have an extensive history with him, have you ever talked about, because these, these quote-unquote issues... I mean, for me, I feel like I'm not qualified to judge if he truly has an issue with this or if it's just bad luck because you play so many tournaments a year. Maybe it's just bad luck that he doesn't have the strongest tournaments in the candidates. But is this something that you know is on his mind, like the, the added weight of the event? Well, I can't really um, you know, get insight in his brain or his mind. I mean, uh, we had this history before. Yeah, when, even when LeBron was growing as a child, um, he had this like uh, sometimes problems by uh, by playing uh, like most important event and let's say um, not playing well and important rounds. But then he learned and then he become quite strong and he learned how to you know how to win important games, how to win important events. But I think that's particular event, uh, the candidate, because it it's the stake is so high. And everyone wants to play match against Magnus, you know, a World Championship match once at least, 
on his career. And maybe there is some sort of uh, psychological discomfort going on in, uh, in Levon's head. That's my opinion. We had this history before. Uh, ben, if you look for the chess history, if you're familiar, we had this like amazing like a player like a Paul Karras, for instance, who he came like a, several times, let's say second or third on, uh, on candidate, but couldn't qualify for, uh, for the matches. I mean, I think we had, I mean, I can continue the history, let's say, uh, even nowadays, Arthur Yusupov. The point is, there is, unfortunately, or let's say, Ivanchuk. Ivanchuk, one of the greatest players these days, and still never was able to capitalize his dream and play World Championship match. You know, so, um, again, it's not end of the world. Um, obviously, um, this is very upsetting for Levon, for Levon's fan, for me personally. But I'm still hoping one day to see Levon uh, qualifying, breaking this through, and uh, playing match for World Championship match. I know for sure, I've spoken several times, that's his dream. He really wants to get there. Because to accomplish what he had done before, I mean, he is three-time Olympic champion. He's, like, uh, he's been like uh, five years consistent number two right behind the Magnus Carlsen. I believe the only guy who was consistently number two in the ranking list. So the only thing I, I guess what he's missing on his like you know resume is to be to play a match for world championship. So I hope he's going to be qualifying at some point. Yes, as do I. And for I think a lot of listeners will didn't will know this, but for listeners who don't, uh, Melixa and Levan are both from Armenia, and Melixa was Levan's first coach and actually lived with his family for for years. Correct? Yes. So that that's uh, an incredible history. So we're privileged to have you able to give give this insight. Um, and he is still in his early 30s, so I do agree that there's no need to sound the death now. It's a little bit disappointing, but luckily the other players, the again, as we record, Caruana and Mamed Yarov are kind of the two most likely to, to emerge from this tournament, with Grishik also having an outside shot. Uh, and there's things that are likable about all the players. So I know that you have a close personal relationship uh, with Levan, but for the rest of us, um, at least... Uh, it should be a, a compelling matchup, whichever of those three it is. Um, so do you have any other major storylines or favorite games that you've identified, things that, that we'll, we'll look back and remember this candidates by years down the road? Well, I mean, this kind of tournament is clearly like one of the best kind of tournaments in the history because it's really brutal. People are trying to fight uh, almost every single game because if you compare like, uh, you know, like other kind of tournaments, uh, um, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Perhaps I'm wrong, you know, but I always feel it was a tail and it was a head. So at this tournament, the feel actually really much even. Even so, Levon right now on the last place, but I mean, would you imagine like Levon being like on the last place before the event? No. No. I mean, would you imagine like Wesley So would be like uh, on place next to him? No. I mean, it's just uh, a very strong event himself. Now, who else my next pick, if you're asking me? Uh, before the tournament, I made this bold prediction. I said uh, there is a two players I see a winner of this event, uh, either uh, Levon Aronian or uh, uh, Fabi Caruana. So, okay, I, I clearly failed in, in the Levon's uh, pick, but I mean, I don't think so. I, I failed on, on Caruana. I knew I'm, I'm following this kid, I'm following uh, Fabiano like for quite a few years, and I noticed he's a. Uh, he's, uh, Truly, you know, like man up player. I mean, he's the guy who can have really quick recovery. Like after this collapse, huge disasters tournament, like when he faced and chorus, 
now he's making like the history. And uh, honestly, if you're asking me who is the most deserved right here, right now, that's him. Because Mamed Yarov clearly improved his game, but he's too rational. He's a way too uh, practical. He, he doesn't take a risk, if you noticed. He just, uh, okay, wh- whichever position I allow him to play for win, then he plays for win. It's funny, like first rounds, right, when he took his risk against, uh, uh, against not, not a risk, but he was fighting against Kramnik and he won this uh, very unpredictable endgame. Uh, and then he beat like uh, Karyakin on the very first round. I mean, he, I guess he was really having this um, attitude to, to destroy, to win. And then I think he, he kept his plus two score. And now he's not making, in my opinion, again, I might be mistaken. I'm not like, like you said, I can't really judge from my uh, position. But I don't see him willing to break something and win some extra games. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's funny because his style is more in a, more known as like a bit more swashbuckling than, say, Fabiano's. I mean, right. all, the, all these guys can play in every style. You don't get to be top 10 in the world without being able to play every way. But Mamed Yarov is known for, for generally being a fierce attacker. But I agree, he's, he's playing it a bit close to the vest uh, now that he's like in contention. Right. Uh, and yesterday, obviously, that... If if Fabiano can hold on and win it, uh, him having white against Fabi and, you know, he got a slight edge, but definitely uh, it, it petered to an end game where Fabi looked like he was going to hold it most of the time. So Right, that- right. No, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry for the interruption, Ben, but yesterday I had the same feelings, Ben. Uh, he, I don't think so ever at any moment of the game, uh, Fabi had any, any, like, let's say, uh, chances to lose the game. I yeah. think pretty much he was in control of the game the whole time. Yeah, and with psychology being so important, as we discussed with with this tournament, you you want to put pressure on your opponents even more so than usual. Absolutely, give them a chance to get nervous. Right, uh, and on top of this, uh, Ben, you never want to give the other people to do your job, which means let's if we assume situations, let's say last round, and the same half point difference in there. So what's going to happen? Let's say uh, Mamedyar will have to take a risk, huge time, right? And then uh, Karan will play his own game, but which means there is no game between them each other. So that's why you always, like you mentioned early on, you always count on your own encounter, which means uh, at the time, whenever he plays as white against Caruana, he needs to understand that's the moment. That's the momentum. That's what it is. Yeah, good if point. I, if, yeah, if I deserve to be there and play the match against Magnus, then I have to win this game. That's it. That's a, yeah, that's an excellent point. In sports, any sports fan knows the importance of having the team you're rooting for control their own destiny. Right. Absolutely. Yep. And uh, yeah, he's tracking to to have not to have an issue with that, but we'll see. Again, people will know, so we don't need to. There'll be plenty of time to to recap this tournament when it's over. So I I want to move on to because there's so many interesting topics I'd like to hit with you. But one thing I do I do want to get a bit more into your background with with Levan because it's just such a fascinating story. So you started coaching him at the age of nine, correct? At his when he's uh, nine, of course. Yes, I mean, yes, but because we started to coach because he was very little. In fact, uh, the, the, the common mistake, I'm not his first coach, firstly. Um, I'm his second coach. Okay. Because, yeah, I, and I'm not from Armenia originally. 
I'm originally from the same city as Mamidiana, from Baku, Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. No worries. Yeah. No worries. Um, well, I mean, many years ago, many bad things happened, and uh, my life circumstances uh, makes me leave my, uh, let's say, the, the city, the country where I was born, and I moved uh, to uh, my country by basically by origin. Uh, because I'm Armenian, uh, and I moved to from Azerbaijan uh, to Armenia, but my background, as you're saying, was pretty much Russian background. I represent Russian chess school, um, and because in Baku it was so international, and my teachers, my coaches, and my foundation uh, was grown in Moscow, because I was actually a student of uh, academy in Russia, in Moscow, under uh, ninth world champion Tira Petrosian. And um, let's say most of my coaches being like uh, Russian coaches, such as uh, uh, Nikitin, Shakarov. So uh, I've been taught by them. And then when I uh, moved to Armenia um, and uh, I was uh, trying to complete my education in Armenia, and uh, uh, one of my mutual friends uh, basically represent me, Levan Aronian, who back then was like eight years something, around nine-ish. And he, uh, she told me, she said, Melik, you know what, this kid is too good for me. I am just a very much scholastic player. Her name was uh, Ludmila. Um, uh, I forgot. Uh, name of Ludmila, but the uh, uh, last name was Finaryova, Russian last name. Anyway, she told me she, she can't handle this uh, too smart for her. I mean, hmm. for her. You know, the kid was way too strong, sort of, at very early stage, at early uh, early age. So anyway, I took Levon uh, under my, uh, let's say, wings. Uh, it was uh, basically right early 90s. You know, Levon was uh, pretty much like eight and selfish, around nine years old, like you said. And the very first time we traveled for um, a World Youth Championship, we actually uh, had prepared for that. We won qualifier, in fact. And then we traveled to Germany. And, yeah, I mean, I think officially we start to work uh, from 19, I would say 90. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and did you have a sense right away that he was a special player? Yes. So what gave it away? <laughs> uh, his look. Oh, interesting. Could, yeah, could you... his look and his, uh, his, he was always holding either chess books or chess board uh, with him. And he was always asking so many questions. That's that's great. So I'm pretty self motivated. I'm guessing. Absolutely no. He was he was the he was a dream for every, every chess coach. Uh, I mean, he was amazing kid. He was amazing kid. You know, but there is obviously many many talented kids. I mean, I, I guess God gives talent to every child to every person, but. Uh, the chess-wise, it's require special talent. And, uh, you know, I've been seeing many, many kids through my career, many good kids, many great kids, but he was the greatest so far. Okay. And that uh, brings to mind a, a perennial question here on Perpetual Chess, which is the, the role of talent in becoming an elite chess player. I feel like you're well-positioned to have an informed opinion on this. So uh, when... When you see a kid who who picks things up more quickly than than others, like what do you? I'd, let me rephrase that. What do you think are the most important factors in becoming a say, you know, grandmaster? 
Uh, that's a million dollar question, Ben. <laughs> it is. Asking. There's a lot of listeners listening eagerly. <laughs> right. Many, many important things are important, obviously. Many things need to be connected like a stars on the sky, you know. But the important, in my opinion, what makes uh, chess players to be, like, special, right, it's his ability of concentrating, his ability to calculate, his ability to memorize, and most importantly, his ability to listen, and sometimes whenever he does wrong decision at the game at early stage of his career, to understand this, to admit that, and adjust. Yeah, that's that's quite a mix. I know, I know. But I mean, if you if you try to make a simple version, it's basically don't guess, and whatever you do, have a foundation, have a proof. Interesting. Could you could you elaborate on that? Let's say if basically if if make it even more simple version, what I said, it's about having like fantastic concentration. Okay. Focusing. Okay, and you've worked with Levon, you've worked with Grandmaster Caden Trough, with uh, young talent Craig Hilby. You've worked with so many strong players. I'm sure there's yes. like 20 more you could rattle off. So was, and all of these players are amazing and have done great things and have even more potential, but was there something different even from Levon compared to other uh, talented young kids you've coached that went on to become Grandmasters? Well, obviously, uh, I have my own methods. I have my own systems. And, uh, um, you know, you need to also develop those skills because, okay, obviously, Levon wasn't Levon himself at the very beginning. It still was required some special training, some special, you know, attention. Um, and the same thing will happen. I can, like you said, I have a name of a uh, list, list, like a huge list of my good kids. And I think I, I'm, I produce like a many grandmasters these days. And for my most recent, as you mentioned, it was Craig Hilby uh, who came to me like at the level of around like 1800 or so. I mean, yeah, I mean, you have to develop the skills. You must um, make kids to do, uh, to listen to you and to, to follow you. You know, I think, uh, I don't know, in, in, in my opinion, um, I'm, I'm glad being able to still play chess by myself and being not as, as weak as maybe as I feel. And maybe that also helps uh, my students to understand those concepts because most of the times I was able to show them those examples and situations based on my own play, based on my own feelings. That's really important to me, like in order for uh, any chess coach uh, and become truly chess, strong chess coach, he needs to be at least, at least strong himself, sort of. Of course, yeah, especially when we're talking about uh, helping so many grand, so many people attain the title of grandmaster. Right? It would be hard for for someone who's not near that level to yeah to absolutely. to help that. So, what is your approach with your students? Like, uh, what sort of uh, material do you generally present? Uh, do you have a secret sauce? Mm, I don't know if it's secret or not. I mean, I guess every coach has his own uh, uh, favorite things to do. Uh, fair, fair with, let's say, methods to work on. Uh, what I like to work primarily is uh, making think, uh, making kids think properly, uh, making kids understand the concepts of thinking, what to do, what not to do, try to read upon its mind, uh, predict things, uh, improve calculation, 
I think that's what I'm trying to focus on primarily because to me, foundation of each child, it's a properly thinking. Whenever they know how to think, whenever they know how to, you know, behave, how to keep themselves at the board, at the game, um, the rest of the things such as like, okay, like polishing, improving your opening, stuff like that, it's, it comes later, you know. Like uh, Cal Blanca used to say, you always think from the end. You always uh, learn first how to play end games because it's easier for you to understand the value of your moves, the value of your plays in end games. Whenever you learn that, then you're going to get back and learn how to play middle games and, and openings. That's interesting. We had a question along those very lines from from uh, one of the supporters of the podcast, Ryan Murphy. He, he asks, what do you think of an endgame first approach for teaching young, talented students? I've found that it helps them develop the ability to calculate deeper, simpler, simple lines when there's less clutter on the board, as well as to develop some concept of planning. So, Absolutely right. Okay. So that's, that's, is that generally what you do? Like, because uh, for us, I mean, we have chess players of all strengths who listen to this podcast. There's other grandmasters like yourself, and then there's people who are just uh, rather enthusiastic uh, amateurs. Um, but do you think that that advice holds to all levels? Like if you got a student who's rated, say you got a talented kid rated 2000, so he's new to you but not new to chess, um, would you also start with end games with someone like that? Well, uh, again, tough question. So firstly... Each child, each student has its own sort of issues, has its own situation, all right? You can't really apply the same principles towards to every single student, all right? And obviously, some kids having issues with calculations, some kids having issues with uh, techniques with end games. But in general, in general, if you think of it, um, end game study helps you to, uh, to fix uh, many areas, including your calculation, if, including your... Uh, let's say, understanding of uh, value of your pieces. So those things, you're absolutely right, uh, comes from knowledge of your end games. I mean, no matter what end games it's required for any chess player, particularly between, let's say, let's say 1900 to 2200, that's the area for you, that's the time for you to really pay attention to your end game skills and improve it. Because if you don't have a you know strong endgame knowledge, if you don't understand strong endgame concepts, then I don't think so. You can ever grow uh, as as more than twenty two hundred, for sure. That makes sense. Yeah, because you can't avoid them in a game. Absolutely, you can avoid theory. Um, you could try to avoid tactics, but you're not avoiding the end game. Well, this days, Ben, this days, uh, I mean, the the opening theory has been grown, has been uh, you know getting so deeper and sometimes let's say you prepare the opening line and it takes you like to the end game yeah i'm it's serious true. Yeah. yeah i mean sometimes i, remember, I don't want to give the name but recently i have preparing against some uh, very strong player and you know my preparation went approximately around you know move 35 30, 34 wow that's that's mind-boggling yeah. And I, I was debating, I was spending like 40 minutes about like to trying to understand this, uh, uh, this end game because I, I sort of had a feeling this is better for me, but I couldn't understand. Then when I had my vision, what I did, I put my vision on the engine, all right? I let the engine think for a couple hours. And then when I get back to it, I got my solution. I, hmm. I went for the game. I got the game from my home. 
So you and this game already happened after the preparation. Yeah, yeah, it happened. I don't know what they gave the name and situation, but basically, I won the game pretty much by not making any single move. Wow! Did you did you tell your opponent that, or is it? Uh, yeah, but I didn't want to, you know, hurt his feelings. So yeah, okay, that, that's incredible. Thirty. Yeah, I mean, 30... obviously, my opponent didn't play the line which I was expecting. He went uh, much weaker line, but then he was saying I should be playing that. I said, okay, yeah, you, maybe you should, but I mean, I had something there as well. Huh, interesting. And yeah. and you mentioned you do you do manage to stay active. You're heading to Reno next weekend. Uh, and you, I, I gather that that helps inform your teaching. I have a question related to your playing um, it's from uh, John Parker, uh, another supporter of the podcast, who asked, what is the thought process you use before making a critical move? So that's a little, anyway, that could go any number of ways, but I guess like right. how, right. how do you balance I mean, the big picture versus the small picture, or how do you advise uh, players well, I mean, to do that? Well, I mean, obviously... Before you make any commitment, before you make any decision, uh, you have to like uh, uh, learn the position, right? You have to like uh, study a position. You must understand like what's going on, uh, what's your perspective, what's your planning. I mean, I always said to all my students, no matter how difficult your situation is, no, no matter how wild is your situations, the picture, the vision come first. So you don't make any decision uh, before you don't have a picture strong in your mind. Otherwise, no matter what you do, will be simply considered as a guessing. All right. So, so you would? Could you explain what you mean by that? By a picture in your mind? Well, planning. You need to understand exactly what do you want from position. Okay. You need to plan your game, and even whenever you deal with, let's say, most wild uh, circumstances, most wild situations, you simply need to understand your direction. And sometimes it will take you like a, you know time. Let's say sometimes I fail. I mean, these days for me, like the role model, it's actually Kramnik because I noticed like whenever we like aging people like myself or Kramnik, I mean, actually older than Kramnik, um, we try to have more fun because, I mean, I don't think so I have something to prove to this world, to this, I mean, to my students. And this day I'm trying to have more fun and I'm trying to actually play as, as, uh, as dynamic as possible. And uh, most of my games, I went to St. Louis recently being like probably like most wild games in the whole tournament. I mean, I mean, I keep working on my calculation, but try to keep it sharp, like Victor Koshner have done. Um, okay, I fail. Sometimes I can't, like you said, I can't find that critical moment. Sometimes I feel it wrong. Sometimes I'm counting wrong. But it's okay, you know, I'm trying. I'm trying to do as best as I could. I mean, obviously, 20 years ago, I would handle those losses. I will turn them to my wins, but it's okay. <laughs> yeah, and Kramnik's getting a lot of attention for that exact approach in this candidates tournament. Yeah, I mean, I, I love it, uh, Ben. I love it. I think the guy simply enjoys enjoy playing his chess. Yeah, for sure. And you know, if you're, I don't know, Kramnik might think he's the strongest player in the tournament. He might not. But if you if you did not think you're the strongest player, then you want to increase the volatility of your results. You don't want to just uh, play close to the vest every game as his style is more famous for. You want you want the games to be a slugfest because the more decisive results, even if on average your results might be worse, it might increase your your overall chance of winning if you can right. string together a couple wins. And of course, the chess world is blessed because he's produced a few brilliancies uh, even, even in the course of uh, not playing uh, his normal solid self this tournament. Right. Also, I think uh, Kramnik is, uh, yeah, I mean, the one thing you mentioned, he always think he always uh, good, he always better. That's true. That's Kramnik. That's his uh, trademark. Mm-hmm. Um, but another thing is, uh, 
uh, what Kronik realized um, in order for him to beat Magnus, if he's going to beat Magnus, he needs to learn the style to play this wild chess. Because no one, no one, this is, I mean, this is what I'm saying, like straight in the air, no one can beat Magnus in uh, like positional way by trying to outplay him. Yeah, you can't out-Magnus him. No, right. No one. No one these days can actually be close to him because Magnus is amazing. He has amazing positional skills. He is like a combination of, uh, let's say, Karpov and Kramnik himself and all those you know, great positional players together. Yeah, and it, it, he makes it look so easy even in blitz games. Right. So which means the, in all, in, uh, the only way for him, for, for people, for, for players... Uh, to try to uh, dethrone Magnus, it's to be a wild. And maybe that's what uh, Kramnik had realized, and he's trying to be like that. But it's tough because, you know, there's still aging issues, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, honestly, people maybe don't really feel that way, but whenever, I'm, let's say, I have many clients who comes to me uh, and wants to play chess or improve his chess uh, at certain age, right? And, um, yeah, they're trying, they're trying, but nothing could be done against the nature. You know, sometimes nature takes over. That's interesting. I don't know if you saw this blog post by my friend, Greg Shahadi. He's, uh, he's big on the, he's big anti-aging. He says, if you're not trying to be world-class at something, you can always get better at it. Well, I have a different opinion. I okay. think maybe, maybe you can improve. No, you can improve. Sure. I have like, I have a proofs. I have like a situations. I have, uh, I, I can say that. Uh, you can improve. I even try to do some methods on myself. But, I mean, I remember a few years ago, I strongly considered to, uh, to leave chess because I thought, like, okay, I'm done. I couldn't play chess. Uh, my, I think my rating dropped, like, uh, uh, to the lowest, like, ever possible, like, uh, you know, level, like a 25-20 USCF, 24 something like, FIDE. I thought, okay, it's time to retire. I mean, come on. This is, like, embarrassing. Uh, but then I made some adjustment. Uh, I found some uh, some of my issues, some of my problems. I addressed them, and you know what? I gained like almost hundred points, and I still um, feel some joy from playing. You can make some adjustment, uh, but no matter what you do, uh, your adjustment, your play will never be the same as let's say twenty years ago. No yeah. way. Yeah. If you think of Kramnik, or if you think of let's say Aronian. Aronian will never be the same as Aronian, but us back to, to uh, 2008, 2009 years. No way. His best years was around like 20, uh, 2008, 9, 10, was his the best, you know. No, there is no way. Even Magnus Carlsen cannot return his age. If you think Magnus at his prime, you're mistaken. That's interesting because the... I mean, there hasn't been extensive research on this field, and I didn't read the study, but I've seen the stories about it. The The studies say that chess players peak around the age of 30, which is, you know, Carlson's a few years younger and Aronian's a few years older. But, but Only you, one proof, Ben, sorry for interruption. Only one amazing proof of your theory or Grishani theory, it's Anand. That's it. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I don't know if he'd say he's at his peak either, but yet, like you say, he's made the adjustments that he needed to. Um, but I, I have to hear, if you don't mind, Malik, I have to hear what your adjustments were in order to get those hundred points back. Um, uh, I'm trying, I'm still trying what I did. I mean, obviously in my diet, in my regime, 
Uh, I hate, I'm very lazy man in order to, to go to fitness, stuff like that, but I'm trying to do something like that. So what do you, you know? know? Uh, some push-ups, some pull-ups, stuff oh. like that. I'm trying, yeah, sit-ups, you know. I'm, I'm doing something at least to keep myself in shape. I'm walking a lot. Fancy God, I have a dog, so I have to walk uh, almost like every day. So that's good for me, walking. Nice. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I had to, like, uh, I was, like, almost over 200 pounds. I have to, like, uh, drop some weight. I mean, that actually helps me as well. Uh, helps my sleep and it helps to adjust. And clearly, chess-wise, it's calculation. I had to force myself to work on calculation. So a player of your stature, what do you do to work on calculation? Endgame studies, mostly. Of course. Yeah, that's such a common theme amongst the Grandmaster guests that I've had. I, you know, I'm, I'm, like, I'm about 2170 FIDE, and I haven't, I'm not super active in chess at the moment. But I did not reach a level where I was doing a lot of studies. And I know that several guests have, have stressed how important it is to really just you know, set, give yourself a hard problem and sit there and solve it. Right. And on top of this, uh, Ben, we do them blindfold. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Always blindfold. Because the way how I do it, I look at the position. I keep myself, let's say, a few seconds. I memorize it and I do it blindfold. That's the way to do it. So will you think about it like all day if you have to? Do you sit there and focus? No, 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 no. No okay. all day. Come on. No, no, no. It's time limitation. Okay. It's time limitation. Yeah. Because no matter how difficult is your position, 20 minutes top. So if you don't get it after 20 minutes... Then you, you're not smart enough. Okay, so do you look up the answer? I already know I'm not smart enough, but but, but what do I do then? <laughs> <laughs> no, it means that there is some problem. I mean, obviously, if I can't make it in 20 minutes, then um, I do like a second try, you know? I'm still trying to complete my uh, thinking, but if I second 20 minutes didn't work out, it means this is too much for me, then... I have to see like what's going on, what I missed. Okay. But usually, twenty minutes uh, it should be enough. And where do you get the material? Where do you find the studies? Oh, I have a bunch of material. I have like a whole database of uh, chess uh, endgame puzzles. Like, I believe I have like twenty six thousand positions. Okay, so if someone is listening and they say, "I want to get Malik's positions," uh, how do they? <laughs> how do they do that? <laughs> how do they do that? Yeah. Um, well, most of my students they have it. I simply send uh, send a database to them. Okay, so uh, they, they hire you for as a coach. <laughs> Step one. Yeah, well, okay. yeah sure. <laughs> or maybe you, you might be my friend. <laughs> to have right, <it>. okay. <laughs> so maybe buy you a drink. Well, yeah, Ben, if you need it, I can always send it to you. No worries. Uh, oh, thank you. I wasn't, I mean, uh, that would be incredible. I actually wasn't asking for myself. I just always try to keep the listener perspective in mind. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say no, but I have to be honest. I have, I have two little kids. I'm not a... Not doing a lot of studies at this exact moment, but like you, I do. I feel like I have unfinished business over the board, but I have to have to wait till I have a little bit of highway in front of me and can really study and push myself because I'm not yeah. there right now. No, this is thanks God, thanks. We have uh, so many things, so many resources. I mean, at, uh, you can even get like applications like on on a, uh, you know on Apple. Like I, I think there's the, I, I download some app like for four ninety nine, whatever it is, like uh, studies. I want to travel on my plane or whatever it is. I just simply use that application uh, on my iPad or my iPhone, you know. Um, otherwise, yeah, there is some files. I have a bunch of files of, of Russian composers, which I like them. Um, you know, it's very important. Do you have a favorite composer of all? Kubo. 
Okay. Can you do you know how that's spelled? I'm gonna just so I can put yeah, it in the notes. Yeah. K U K U B B. Okay. L. Kubel. Okay. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people will be taking note of that. Um, yeah. Okay. So and. While we're on the topic, Malik, our, our listeners always like to hear chess book recommendations. Um, I'm sure you've read so many chess books, and it's such a broad question, but do you have any books that were your favorites uh, or that you well, find yourself recommending to your students more than any others? Sure. I mean, the books are obviously very much dependent of the, of the level uh, who we're dealing with. You know, um, Let's say around the like, expert master level, in my opinion, the book of Doretsky, um, you know, one of the best books. Um, most of my material, what I'm using, uh, book-wise, I'm using uh, pretty much, uh, I'm an old-fashioned guy, and I'm using like old Russian books, because to me, um, uh, one of the most important foundation in chess, it came from a, a sort of Soviet school, from Russian school, and to many chess players, including like American players, they learn from that. Um, may, maybe can refuse this and that, but I mean, still, uh, if you think of it, like many of our great chess players, including like say Wesley So, or uh, who pretty much self-educated person, or uh, Nakamura, amazing talent, self-educated. But if you look at Caruana, uh, his background clearly Russian school. Uh, yeah, um, I, I like some of the books of Jacob Agut. Uh, not all of them. Uh, I have maybe two favorite books of, of, from him. I like his Practical Defense. I think it's an amazing book. Um, I like the book of Calculation of his. Uh, maybe some of the part, I don't really like it, but in general, that's a very successful book. Um, I mean, I can mention books of uh, my good friend, uh, Alexey Malinsky, like yes. Road to Redemption. He was uh, an ama- amazing podcast guest, too. Yeah. No, Alex is my mentor. He's my, my good friend for many years. We do broadcast together. In fact, we're going to have broadcast today, uh, 1 p.m. Pacific on choose.com. Excellent. Uh, yeah. I mean, Alex is amazing, uh, you know, uh, coach, teacher, mentor. You call whatever you want. He's, uh, he's the guy who has amazing, uh, he's a legacy, in my opinion, for yeah. U.S. chess. Um, yeah. His determination, his everything, it shows how we should be in the chess, you know. Um, I like the books like of uh, uh, Jan Tiemann, but mostly Jan Tiemann, the Dutch grandmaster, he was focusing on endgame studies. I like the books of John Nahn, one of my favorite authors as well. Um, I like his books. His move, my move series, his endgame studies as well, uh, also amazing. I mean, I can, I can go on and go on, you know. I mean, uh, but I mean, honestly, as I tell you what, uh, even I can go on, but not too many books, I would say they are important. In fact, uh, maybe maybe I'm too strict, maybe I'm, it's going to be too harsh. But in my opinion, Ben, like these days, like 80% of the books, simply garbage. Wow. Yeah, even more, I would say. Because people are writing the books simply because they're trying to make some money, whatever. Uh, it seems like, like su- such a bad way to make money. <laughs> well, it's like used to be. It used to be people writing like a few books, right, on his career. But those books are was amazing. Right. Let's say you look at the Bronstein book, 1953, Inter- Tournament. One of the best books ever written about chess. Or neither of the same tournament book. Or Renaris, 1994. I mean, you know, 
there is some books which I would say like bestseller. And these days, it's like a movies. I mean, you know, whenever you watch those movies, today you watch, you like it. But tomorrow, if someone would ask you, hey, dude, tell me what was the movie about? Say what? Right. I remember. Yeah, it's true. I mean, and, but in addition to the books, a lot of the instruction has moved online, which I think... Um... Oh, yeah. I have. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you look at like com, we have like a storage of, uh, I don't know how many lectures. I mean, I was providing my lectures there like a... I don't know, from my, I think it was like from 2009 uh, through 2016 or so. Now things a little bit changed on Jews.com. Uh, but in general, I had like a, many of those lessons I'm prepared. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, these days, uh, chess become more interactive. So these days, uh, players are more interested to watch broadcast and learn from a live commentary, uh, which it makes sense, uh, you know. Things change, like I said, life is going to change. It's not like you used to be. And um, and especially when you're buying those band, like uh, opening books, you buy them today, but don't forget the, the book was wrapped, like what, like six months before the book came out. And at the time when the book came out, it was the old. Yeah. Yeah, with openings in particular, it seems like uh, books are are eventually not going to be the best way to learn, and it's already moving in that direction. Right, right, yeah. I mean, again, not not every not every single um, player capable to provide some insight because these days, if you look for uh, books for uh, annotations for analysis, uh, most of those analysis pretty much complete analysis, which could be done by you as well. Right. I mean, what's the point for you to get the book? Tell me. Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. Um, okay, so Malik, one one question that. You- or topic that you you mentioned, but I feel like we have to dive a little bit deeper because I'm sure our listeners are just dying to hear about it. So you you worked under you were a student of, of world champion Tigran Petrosian, and I know I saw an interview where you said you 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 learned lessons from from him that you still think about. So could could you tell us what that was like? What your memories are of it? I know it was a long time ago. Well, yeah, I mean those lessons uh, basically uh, had a huge impact in my in my development as a chess player, because maybe when you're a kid, you don't really understand, you're not really like paying attention too much. Uh, but I mean, at some point, it's like, um, you know, when you rewind uh, uh, those lessons, obviously I can't remember like 100% everything, but I do remember uh, most of the concepts. And sometimes when I look for positions, somehow it's like a flashback, you know, you remember what Petrosian was in general saying about those things in those positions. And that helps a lot. So, I mean, what was what was your interaction with him like? You went to one of the Soviet chess schools, right? So, was it mostly group lessons? Yeah, it, it was group lessons. It's like a chess camp these days, you know. It it, it was group lessons, but don't forget, uh, it wasn't just uh, like a huge group of attendants. No, it was a very limited number of kids. I think the group was about like a ten, maybe fifteen maximum capacity for kids, and. Um, Pretty much, uh, it was back to Soviet, which means every single republic, it's like every single state in these days, but not 50 states, uh, 15 uh, were sort of sending the best kids of the, uh, of the nation uh, to learn in, to Moscow. And uh, I was uh, back then uh, representing, uh, representing my, my, my state, like uh, Azerbaijan, whatever it is, because I was like champion back then. Anyway, the point is, it was very strong kids. 
like most of our kids, uh, either become grandmasters, uh, threshold masters. And I think the greatest uh, in our, uh, let's say, generation, in our school, who came out from us, from our school, was Boris Gelfand, who I knew from, uh, from school. Wow. Yeah. yeah. An, an absolute legend. Former world champion. Yeah, I know Boris, like, really well, so... Um, so did he, so first of all, so you were flown in, like you were, you traveled to Moscow in order to go to these workshops or camps or whatever you want to call yes. them. So how yes. many, how many weeks during a year would it have been? Um, every, every other three months, uh, I think four times in a year, uh, average was two weeks session. Okay. And how old were you at the time? Um, I think I started to travel to Moscow when I become... I think it was around like 11 years old, 11, 12. So did you, did you have the sense that like, this is an amazing opportunity? Did you, did you appreciate the fact that it was a world champion teaching you as an 11 year old? Are you kidding? Yeah. I mean, you know, back then we had so much respect to every grandmaster. Back then we could count them like on our fingers, you know, back then whenever we are, been watching the uh, games of or seeing like a live like a person like grandmaster. Oh my God, this guy's yeah. grandmaster! You know, now it's different. Now it's like with this inflation, it's absolutely different. Uh, but back then it was different. And world champion? Are you kidding? I mean, yeah. this is like it was something which you would never forget. I still have some books with his uh, autograph. I still have something. Some uh, some postcards with his autograph. I'm still keeping them. This is like memory. There is no way you can forget this. Good, good. I'm glad to hear that. And did he analyze your games at all? Oh, absolutely. That's amazing. And how was he? Was he was very friendly. He was very uh, super friendly. That's ex- yeah. That's just what I was going to ask. So friendly guy and uh, good communicator. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And. Did he have, was there a theme to the material he presented? Like, did, did he, uh, he's famous, obviously, for being tough to beat more than anything else. Was, did that come through in the lessons he was presenting? Or was he so far ahead of you guys that it was more like no, drinking, drinking from always, a fire hose? Like I said, he was always down to earth. He was always being nice to us. Uh, and he was, there, what I learned from him, that's what I'm saying. One of the like, tricks I sort of learned from him as being coach, he was mostly using material based on his own games. Because he was sharing with us his thought process, uh, what happening. Obviously, we covered back then some important games uh, for by other players, you know. Uh, but I mean, again, the priority was his own experience, his own games. But we obviously had invited, like uh, I remember the lesson by Nikitin, many lessons by uh, Weissman. Gary Kasparov came to us. Dvorinsky was there. I mean, wow. Yeah, I mean, I imagine this is like a huge experience, you know. So uh, you would never forget that. Yeah, and you're—I mean—and you're in Moscow too. So did your uh, did your family go with you? Oh yeah, my dad. My dad always traveled with me. I mean, he he always been taking me to to that uh, to those sessions. Was he a chess player? Well, he's the one who who taught me chess. Okay. Yeah, I mean, he's still playing chess when I see. I mean, oh great! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Does he live in the U.S. now, or is he? Um... Yeah, yeah, I brought my family here. Okay, are they all in Southern California as well? Yes, all of them. All of them. Cool. And when did you? So you've got a chess school out there, right? No. Oh, okay. So you're just an independent instructor, but no, no physical Always. freedom. That's most important. What I love in this country. Yeah. So you like life here? Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, 
I mean, I used to have a sort of my small school, but then uh, things changed, and now I don't need it at all because now I'm just an online coach at, um, uh, as well. Uh, I'm sure you know I'm also uh, coaching uh, U.S. women's team. Right. For, for the past, like, yeah. What, like, yeah, past seven, eight years. So I hopefully will qualify for this job as well for coming Olympiad. I have my kids traveling for world youth, Pan American, or, uh, you know, uh, uh, other things. So uh, or look at that. So that's another thing is I'm busy. I'm quite busy. And, uh, yeah, every day you're, like, coaching, like, six, seven hours average. And then you have to spend some time on yourself at least to check, you know, how you're thinking, how you're doing. So life is busy. Good. Yeah, better than the alternative. Better than no work or nothing to do. So. Oh, my gosh. Don't tell me. Yeah. Whenever I'm traveling for my vacation, my wife keeps killing me because I travel. I'm sticking my laptop with me. <laughs> may, may I have some maybe a few lessons? I say, oh, my God. Trouble. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, Malik, another there's there's a few more things that I've got to highlight from from your career. One is uh, I saw an interview where you mentioned a, a amazing story about drinking Waspaski. Oh my so, god! <laughs> so you got to yeah. tell this story. How do you know that? Uh, that you know, the internet is a vast uh, vast web of information. So <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think the whole world knows the story. <laughs> no, no, no. You gotta you gotta tell it. Um, yeah, I mean, it was many years ago. Um, yeah, the story was, I, I've been playing, uh, in Iran tournament in 1992, if I'm not mistaken, right after Armenia became independent, uh, country and one of the first events, like internationally, it was, um, a tournament in Iran. So somehow I get qualified for that travel, for that trip, and we went there. And uh, I think it was officially first tournament in Iran, uh, chess tournament organized back then, because in Iran, um, uh, chess was prohibited for many years since uh, uh, Shah regime was uh, dethroned, right, back to the 70s. A- anyway, so we went there, it was a very nice organized tournament, and uh, one of the tournament-like players who we see, we see Boris Pasky, the legend. And I believe back then Boris was making his uh, kind of comeback a little bit to chess because he was almost retired. But then it was some rumors uh, about him playing soon match against the Fisher. If you remember that back yeah, then, yeah, right when Fisher came back, yeah, right. So um, and uh, Boris came to play the tournament, and uh, I mean, around before he met me, we, before we met, I believe he played against my. Very good friend, uh, Tigran, Grandmaster Tigran Nobanjan, right now. And um, Tigran was able to hold a draw, and it was amazed. I have to tell you, we've been like, supported so much by a uh, huge Armenian community back then in Iran. And, um, you know, when, uh, when he drew the game, uh, it was great uh, for everyone, for, for us, for young Armenian players. And, you know, to, to draw like uh, uh, Spassky was an amazing achievement. So, I don't know, a day or two pass, and I'm playing Spassky on board one, so, uh, and then I have a, I had a black pieces, and then we had a game, and I think it was around, like, move 17, 18. I mean, right after the opening, he opened me a draw. And it's funny, like, I, I was young, uh, and I'm looking for a position. I do understand my position is slightly better as black. But I do understand as well I'm playing Boris Spassky. So what do you do? Would you accept a draw and say you're very happy? You drew against Boris Pasky, 
and you can go home and scream, you know? Yes, I do. <laughs> would you would you be so nuts and say no to him? I'm like, I said, I'm sorry. But I have to say no to you. I mean, not to your proposal. Simply because I want to play the game. And you should see, like, uh, the face impression by Spassky back then. Right. I mean, it's completely changed. From being so friendly, smiling, you know, relaxing. He says, no problem, young man. We'll play. <laughs> as soon as he said that, I said, I am dead. <laughs> I am dead. Anyway, I think uh, we played the full time control. Uh, we went to the full time control. Uh, I was outplayed by uh, Great Spassky, but I was defending like a lion. You know, and at some point, because back then it was no time increment, no time delay, nothing like that. We had a straight time control. And I think uh, what happened, he, uh, Spassky had about like five minutes on his clock, and I had about like uh, maybe 10. And I was down the pond. But the time issue was the issue. And Spassky said, what I was saying online, I'm sure you heard the story, Spassky said something like, um, young man, I'm going to do something which I have done never before in my life. I'm going to offer you second time a draw. And you're going to accept this. And I'll be waiting you in my room, in my hotel room, but you're going to bring something. <laughs> well, to bring something um, in Iran it was a very difficult task itself. So I had to ask my Armenian friends. They helped me out, and I got a nice bottle of whiskey. Did he explicitly ask for whiskey? Or <laughs> Yeah, I would nice. say yes. Okay. Yeah. And we had a fun. We had a huge fun. I, I mean, I took that. I took my friend to... Uh, Tigran Nobandian, and we went to his room of Spassky, and we spent an amazing night with uh, Boris, uh, talking about chess, chess history, showing us the game of Paul Morphy. I mean, unbelievable memory, unbelievable. I don't know, you call whatever you want, Ben, but it was honestly one of my best ever nights spent, uh, I mean, chess-wise, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think for, if anyone listening had that opportunity i'm sure they would feel the same way and i mean it, sorry go on no i mean we we were there like back then what almost international masters we thought we know about chess something but after after talking with boris we realized we know nothing hmm. was yeah. it from analyzing with him or just to like more talking, to analyzing visioning everything i mean everything you can say you know i remember Many years ago, Petrosian, when I was a kid, was saying, you can be grandmaster, you can be whatever you want, a strong chess player, but to be world champion, it takes, it, it takes us something. I mean, I think the category of being world champion, it's special category. It's yeah. simply special category of people. So what do you think? I mean, we talked about this a little before, but is there... Is there an obvious thing that, that puts people in that category? Was there something noticeable about Spassky or about the other, you know, they I'm just, sure? They're they gods. For me, the world champion, it's a chess god. No, for a lot of us, I think. Yeah. I, imagine whatever you do, you're human. You're trying to do your best. But whatever they do, they gods. That's it. I mean, but that's why 
you can't really never, ever, ever show any disrespect to all of those people. Whoever had reached to be a world champion, who have been under pressure playing those candidates like years and years, I mean, those are special people. And, uh, yeah, honestly, I, I feel, oh, my God, I thought I knew something about chess. But after I'm, I'm saying to you, after I spent some time with uh, Tiran Petrosian, with Boris Paski that night, that, that evening, I realized how far I am from being perfect chess player in the world. But it doesn't necessarily mean we have to be so much disappointed and not to play chess. Right. You know, it's, it's still, it's still, I'm very happy being part of this chess community because honestly, if you ask me, would I change my life many years ago when I made my decision to uh, become a chess player? I would say never, ever. I would never change any moment of my life uh, from being where I am now. I That's think, great. yeah, I think I'm very happy. That's great. And how was Boris's drinking ability? What's his rating in uh, holding his liquor? I think he was still world champion. <laughs> That's impressive. Wow. Because we, we spent some hours. We've been, no, we wasn't drinking like Russian style, first. We've been drinking like more like English style, enjoying, you know? Yeah. And uh, the, the most important is his mind was always clear. Right. Yeah. His mind was always clear. That's why I like it. So these days, I like to drink like a wine or cognac. I don't drink any more of the other drinks. I mean, and I like to drink it like by enjoying. Yeah. Still like keeping your mind straightforward. Yeah, it gets harder to drink in the Russian style as you get older. Yeah, when you're young, you have no brain. You do, you do whatever. <laughs> right. Yeah. But whenever, whenever you're getting a little bit you know, older, you, you drink with, you know, with pleasure, right? Right. So, Spassky, Petrosian, Kasparov, have you met any other world champions? Um, that's, a good, a, that's a good amount, of course. Right. Yeah, that's the... That's enough amount, I would say. I met Tal. Very, very, very short meeting, but I met Tal. Um, yeah, Tal was also very upsetting. Uh, we lost him too quickly, but he was amazing. He yeah. was amazing. Um, I met Kapov, obviously. Come, yeah, I forgot to mention Kapov several times in several occasions, and uh, yeah. What were the uh, circumstances of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kapov was he was also a very, very friendly guy, very friendly, super friendly. Um, and what else? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I mean, okay. I'm, I'm sorry. I meant Anand. Sure. I meant Anand because Anand. Uh, we actually spent two years by. Uh, coaching, teaching the same camp in Los Angeles area. And uh, I was actually amazed by, you know, how humble he is, how he's a great guy. Yeah, down to earth. Uh, when was that? When was that? Uh, I, I can't really say the years, but a couple of years ago, for sure, for sure, we had this organized camp by um, uh, uh, in, in, in LA area, maybe like a three, four years ago. I mean, oh, actually, no, I'm mistaken. Uh, but it was before his first ever match against Magnus, because back then he was officially still world champion. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I guess it was five, five years, right? At least. Yeah, at least five. Yeah. How long is Magnus as world champion? It's five, five years or so. Yeah, that match was 2013. So. Right, right. So, like, so I'm talking about like 20, 2011, 2012. Perhaps. Okay. Yeah. Incredible. What a life, Malik. Hey. It's a good life, right? 
Yeah, it sounds good to me. Yeah, and um, that's what we came here for. So yeah. So speaking of coming here, you and this is the last sort of major uh, topic I want to hit. Uh, I want to be respectful of your time, uh, but so we we've had a couple great immigration stories. You you mentioned your friend Alex Yermolinsky. He told of how he came to the United States. Um, and we've had some other people tell about how they ended up in the U.S. So I was just curious um, if how you ended up here. I always knew I'll, I'll be in the U.S. I don't know, all my life. Uh, when I was a kid, I never really understood the system, how it works in Soviet. I had some issues uh, in school. Uh, I was one of the first who become, as we call, pioneer because I was best in class. But I was one of the latest. Uh, who become, as we call, consumable, you know, because I, I actually refuse to be. And only because uh, my family, my dad, uh, was having, like, important job, and I was sort of forced to, you know, to be assigned as a consumable member. Anyway, I knew uh, there is something wrong with the system. But when when I had to leave uh, the Azerbaijan, my country, by a region when I was born, because of this... Uh, you know, circumstances under, like, uh, religion issues. Anyway, when I leave and I, when I went to Armenia, I was, like I said, only because Levon, it helped me to be in Armenia. And I was uh, traveling, I was with Levon, but then at some point I started to realize there is still many, many things wrong. And I, I can't stand, you know, that doesn't work. Doesn't work. I'm more free than it is. And um, simply one day I realized... I, I can't I can't take it anymore so any longer, and like I said I, I I asked for for a tournament. I said so I need to go to the tournament. Uh, I think it was Las Vegas tournament. You know I basically you know I came to that conclusion I had to do something to change my life. So yeah I sold my apartment everything and really like within a week very cheap because I knew I'm not going to return and. Um, I went for official for a chess tournament, but immediately I went to immigration. And I remember, like, uh, the officer asked me, so, so did you lie to me? Did you lie to us? I mean, why did you lie to us? Uh, you never said you want to come here, like, and stay in the U.S. I said, so, well, I never lied to you because that question was never asked. Hmm. The question was asked if you're coming for the chess tournament. I said, yes. It was funny, funny story. And then he said, oh, you're smart. I said, well, I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Yeah. yeah. I mean, honestly, I knew there's something need to be changed. And since I had those uh, papers, uh, anyway, I don't want to give like, more details. But the point is, yeah, I came here intentionally. I knew what I'm doing and I knew uh, I want to stay here. And how old were you? I was 31. Okay, and what happened? So you you played the tournament, and then what's your next move? Did no, you? No, no. I, I came. I came in. I, I came in January. I came. I, I came to the tour. I came uh, to U.S. I meet up wife for uh, no whatever. What is this? I don't want to mention that here. And I got my papers in August. So within like six months, I got my papers to stay illegal in U.S. Okay, and where did you did you have money when you came? You sold no. it. Were you able to bring your money? No, 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 no. I, I mean, I, I had to sell my money to pay my debts uh, in Armenia. Okay, so no money. Yeah. You came here. So how did you, like, where did you sleep and how did you support yourself? Uh, my, 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 my brother, my cousin, uh, he helped me a lot for, at, at the very beginning. So yeah. did you, and were they in, in Southern California? Yes, yes. Okay. 
helped me a lot. But no, no matter what, it was my vision. I was working very hard from the beginning by two or three jobs. Um, so so yeah. what, what did you do? What, what were your outside of chess jobs? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I would say everything, man. Everything, uh, whichever was giving me some few dollars in my pocket, because I had to also support my family, my kid who was back then in Russia, and my, my parents. Wow. And how, yeah. was you, how was your English at the time? No. Man, I can't imagine. That must have been uh, stressful. <laughs> it's okay. You know what? Uh, like I said, like, like we talk about like the positions in a, whenever you play a game. Whenever you have a vision, whenever you have a plan, it makes you be strong. It makes you understand what you want. Whenever you have no plan, no vision, it makes you weak. So there, were there moments where you felt like you might be making a mistake or did no, it feel never, right right away? No, no, no. I always knew this is the best move ever I've made in my life. That's good to hear. It's easy to get down on the U.S. sometimes, but I'm glad that it can still provide opportunities for, for, oh, for people. Yeah, absolutely. No, who I become here chess-wise, uh, it was my dream uh, as a coach to realize all my, all my you know, all my visions, all my process, all everything, and also becoming like uh, you know head coach and team captain for US women team. That's a dream for every chess coach, and as well like uh, work for amazing chess community such as Chess.com, and uh, even locally like whenever I travel for the tournaments, uh, lecturing, uh, exhibitions, assignments, and everything. I mean, what else? What else you want? Yeah, not a bad life. And uh, last question, I think. So when did you, so you had to work some odd jobs when you came here. When were you able to transition to being a, a chess professional? I think after I won my first big event, uh, uh, American Open, I think it was uh, 2001 edition, if I'm mistaken. I think back then, yeah, after 9-11, uh, we had still like very much price guarantees, big prices, and it, it was also like the U.S. Chess Championship qualifier, which I wasn't eligible, but I still was very strong field. And uh, I won that clearly event by beating like several grandmaster, and I won like a big paycheck, and I got my first card immediately. And I said, "Okay, if that's the way how we live here, then let's do it." Huh, nice. Uh, so you were in Southern California without a car for a while. Oh, absolutely. Wow. That, that's, <laughs> and this is before Uber. That wasn't easy to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the, uh, yeah, yeah. Buses, buses. Wow. Huh. So you've, Bus you've, and, and walking. Yeah. Wow. No one walks in Southern California. That's amazing. Well, I'm I did. <laughs> good for you. And I'm, I'm sure we're, we're all glad you did. So uh, I, I want to thank you for your time, Malik. This has been awesome. I was, I was especially, I, I love all my guests, but I was excited for this one and it did not disappoint. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. I'm um, looking forward maybe to have a second interview, maybe. That would be <laughs> great. Yeah. We, we didn't even talk about the Olympiads, and uh, I'm sure there's a yeah. lot more we could dig into. So um, if anyone listening wants to reach you, is there a way that they can do that, Malik? Uh, yes. First, they can Google it. Uh, obviously, they can send me like emails, uh, like uh, many emails I have officially like published like online. I think the best email should be like a mail like at gmcatching.com. Okay. Easy enough. Yeah. Um, okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. And good luck in Reno next weekend. Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay. Take care. Thank you, man. Thanks to everyone who supports Perpetual Chess. 
I spend about five hours a week on each episode, and even though I love doing the show, it can be hard to find the time. Without the financial support of the chess community, Perpetual Chess would not be possible. Special shout out goes to my Patreon and PayPal Perpetual Partners, and I have finally updated the list. You guys are Adam Vrancoulge, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, Chad Hilton, Chris Flanagan, Chris Lott, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Wood, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Gary Andrews, Greg Shahadi, James Bonastasia, Jason Dunbar, Jeffrey Martello, Jen Shahadi, Jennifer Valens, Jens Green, John Fernandez, Johnny McMenamin, Kelly Palmer, Krishna Gopalakrishnan, Lorraine Dore, Macaulay Peterson, Matthew Tedesco, Pascal Charbonneau, Paul Sweeney, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Ricky Grijalva, Rob Lazorchek, Tatia Vabrahamian, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Todd Bryant, Tony Rotella, Victor Vrankulj, Zhao Cheng, Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks a lot, guys. I'll catch you guys next week with another episode. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.